So our study aims tonight are to look at Daniel's prophecies of the kingdom of God. The reason we're going with Daniel is because Daniel is the first place in the Bible that the phrase the kingdom of God appears. So this is a, a good place to, to kind of start. So we're going to spend some time looking at Daniel's prophecies and then how Jesus' ministry builds on those. And we'll do a few other bits uh, in between that, but that's the main study aims of today. So hopefully you can come away understanding Daniel's prophecies and seeing how the kingdom of God relates to Jesus' ministry. Okay, let's just jump in with the first um, section. This is, this is, if you like, a summary of everything we've done so far. God's kingdom versus man's kingdom. And that is that since the beginning, what we've looked at is the fact that God had a plan and a, and a design for his creation that uh, people would be his vice regents, reflecting his glory, uh, bringing his characteristics, his moral qualities, uh, who he is to creation to shape it and transform it in the direction of God. So we saw that from the beginning of Genesis, and what we've seen consistently throughout is that's exactly what's not happening. So, um, as I put on the handout, since the fall, man has been setting up their own reign where justice, peace, neighborly love are distorted. That The things which are key to God and God's rule are ignored. So, Psalm 45 says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. God's primary complaint with every kingdom, so most of the prophets, when they complain about a kingdom, it's Israel, but every time they complain about another kingdom, it's always lack of justice. In fact, that's the main complaint with Israel as well. They don't show justice. So man's kingdom is marked by whatever benefits the person who's on the throne. God's kingdom is marked by justice, peace, uh, as I said, neighborly love, and so on and so forth. So there is this tension, this antithesis throughout the Bible of man's kingdom and God's kingdom. And so this kind of sets up this need for, okay, well, what is the kingdom of God addressing when we get to it? Um, and, and that's exactly what it is. It's God breaking into his creation to say, no, enough is enough. Something is going to be done about this. So that comes particularly in the context of Daniel. Does everyone know where Daniel is? Pardon? It, he, okay, yeah, and where was the lion's den? I thought you were going to say the city, but um, yes, I thought we were going to do a whole like concentric circle of eventually getting to the answer of Babylon. So Daniel's in Babylon, so if he's in Babylon, what does that tell us about which period of Israel's history are we in? Exile, yeah, so so Israel had been established as a kingdom to uh, be a priest to the nations, to, to, to share God's blessings with the world, but they have failed. We saw the Mosaic curse that if they don't obey God's law, they'll be sent into exile, and that's exactly where they are. And so when Daniel is there in exile as a prisoner in the world's most powerful empire that basically comes and destroys as it pleases, that's where this notion of God's kingdom first comes in. So it's like we see man's kingdom at its height. And uh, it comes in in a vision. And it's not actually Daniel's vision, but what I'm going to say is that if we could all stop and we could read these verses, Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 to 45, uh, and then basically we'll just go through the, the statue together and we can unpack that a bit. But if we read this and just... Uh, oh, and, and while you're doing this, You'll notice on the bottom of the handout says, what do you learn about the kingdom of God from Daniel 2? So once we've all read the, the prophecy, we can talk about it a bit. So uh, statue with four pieces. Actually, before we do that, let's, let's just remind ourselves of the story. Okay, so they have uh, Nebuchadnezzar who has fallen asleep and he's had this dream. And the next day he wakes up and he says, uh, just to make sure we all know the story, I'm just go over it again. He wakes up and he says, I want to know what my dream means, but what's his caveat? I'm not going to tell you what it is. Yes, you have to tell me what my dream is and tell me what it means. And if you can't do it, then... So Daniel comes along, and Daniel asks God for wisdom, and Daniel says, this is what your dream is, and it's what we've just read. And the dream involves this statue, head made out of... Uh, chest made out of... Belly and thighs made out of... Legs and feet made out of iron and clay. Yes. And uh, so he says, this is the dream you had. Wonderful, Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, that's exactly it. Thank you, Daniel. But then he says, okay, but this is what it means. The gold head, this is your empire. Okay, so we're, we're on pretty safe ground to say that the head is the Babylonian empire. And after you, there will come a second kingdom. 
And oh, by the way, if you were at Odium yesterday, this is the, this is the Phil statue. This is the, the statue that Phil, I mean, that just looks like Phil Jenkins, doesn't it? Uh, there's a second kingdom that comes after you. Now, look at history. In fact, not even, not even just history out there. Even in the Bible, the empire that comes after uh, the Babylonian Empire who defeats them is the Medo-Persian Empire, the empire of the Medes and the Persians. So towards the end of Daniel, Daniel's no longer under Babylonian control. He's under Persian control because the Persians have taken over the Babylonian Empire. And it, Daniel says this kingdom will be inferior and indeed, the Medo-Persians lost a lot of territory that the Babylonians had. So again, I think we're on pretty safe ground so that the chest represents the Medo-Persian Empire. This is where we then start to leave the biblical history and just go into what we know from more general history. The third empire that arises and takes over the Medo-Persian Empire, does anyone know what it is? The Greek Empire. So, so there's actually an interesting story here because this is directly prophesied in Daniel 8. Um, do you remember who the Persians tried to invade but couldn't because there was a certain band of 300 people who stopped them? The, the Greeks? And when Alexander the Great started to rise, he considered it like an absolute affront to his people that the Persians had ever tried to come and take the, his homeland, that basically he... I mean. If you read the, one of the histories that's written about Alexander the Great, it talks about how he rode with, with fury and vengeance to the land of the Persians, and he was very set on taking the Persian Empire as his own. And again, just like Daniel says, this third kingdom will cover the whole world. The whole known world was covered by the Greek Empire. So again, thighs, Greek Empire, I think that's a pretty safe estimation. But then there's a fourth kingdom that will arise, and it'll be mightier than all of them. So I don't know which, this is kind of testing your history. Yes, the Roman Empire, which, which basically mopped up what was left of the Greek Empire. Uh, and it talks about how this empire is a bit divided. So there are debates over where this division relates to. So the Roman Empire split in the early um, centuries after Jesus. And you had the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine and the Ottoman. Um, that could be what it's referring to, but it's unlikely. It's probably more likely just before Julius Caesar became the emperor, uh, Rome went through a civil war and nearly fell apart. So it's probably referring to that more than, um, more than the, the later one. But what, we, what we're told here is basically a map of history. There's going to be these four kingdoms that arise. And just as an aside, actually, this is one of the things that's so fascinating about Daniel. You get any critical uh, scholarly commentary on the book of Daniel, and they will all say the book of Daniel was written in the second century BC. Now, according to Daniel, the book of Daniel was written in the sixth century BC. The reason they all say the second is because the prophecies are too accurate. So again, if you assume that God can give the future to his prophets, then that's not an issue, but unfortunately a lot of critical scholarship begins with the assumption that God can't do that. Uh, especially, um, we're not going to go into it, but especially a prophecy like Daniel 8, where it prophesies Alexander the Great's rise to power, and then, well, we're going to go off on a detour, but the chapters that follow that, are you can almost just sit down with a history book and go, oh, that's that, and that's that, and that's that. If you're a Christian that believes God speaks through his prophets, that's not an issue, which I am, and hopefully we all are. <laughs> yeah, that is good. So uh, what are some key things we see in this um, in this passage. So there's these four kingdoms, but Daniel doesn't just say, by the way, there's going to be four kingdoms. What's, what's the point? They all come to an end. And what does God do? Yes. Yes. Yes, so verse 44, in that time, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. That, that's really interesting because if you notice as we went through them, all of those empires are just kind of mopped up by whoever comes next. The Medo-Persians took the Babylonians, lost a bit of territory. The Greeks took the Persians, but then gained a lot more. The Romans took the Greek and expanded more. So the empires that rise, fall, left to someone else. Whereas God is going to set up a kingdom in the time of the fourth kingdom that will never be destroyed, and it will bring all the other kingdoms to an end. And then the second bit, which was mentioned there by Henny, there's a, a stone, 
Now, and the, the word that's used here doesn't mean rock, bold, or anything like that. It just kind of means a pebble. This is the same thing that David goes to collect from the brook. This is a small stone. So the stone comes, and it smashes the statue. And then what, it does, what does it say happens to that stone? Yes, it says, it says the stone became a great stone and then grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. So the stone comes small and then grows to a big rock, and then grows to a mountain, and then that mountain fills the whole earth. There's a gradual growth uh, of this uh, kingdom. So um, obviously not as good as explaining it with Phil Jenkins as a model, but uh, there's a, uh, that's the first time we've seen the kingdom of God talked about in the Bible, uh, and so that's the, 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 the prophecy that we have there of those four kingdoms. Now let's just jump over to Daniel 7. Now, Daniel 7 is different because Daniel 7 is Daniel's own dream. He's not interpreting someone else's. And when we did the Theology of the Gospels last year, we had a whole session dedicated to Daniel 7 because it's so important to understand Daniel 7 for Jesus' theology. We're going to spend a bit of time in here again because I think it's really important. But uh, I wonder if it might be best if uh, I could either elect someone to read or I could read. Um, what do I feel like doing more? Uh, Mike Dolding, I'm going to just pick on you. It's a, it's a big passage, is that okay? Could you read uh, Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to, let's say, 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from, each, from the others, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devours its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them and the three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So... There we go. Very similar imagery. There's, there's four 
things that represent four empires, and uh, they each arise, and then there's a, something that happens, something unexpected again. It was a tiny stone. This time, there's a lion, there's a bear, there's a leopard, there's all this, and there's a great beast, and this time it's just a man, son like a, one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. So in, in both of these prophecies, you have four great things, and then something small and insignificant comes that has the victory and receives the kingdom. Uh, Daniel then basically says to the angel that shows him the dream, I don't understand what I've just seen. And from verse 15 onwards, the, the angel explains to him. So if I just summarize it briefly, so verse 16, uh, he told me the interpretation, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will arise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. That's important because if you notice, the Son of Man is a singular figure, but when the angel interprets it, he says the Son of Man is the saints of the Most High, the people of God. Um, and the four great beasts are these kingdoms that are going to arise. Um, and then kind of goes on about the, the fourth beast for a long time, but we don't need to go into all of that. Um, the point there is that we have the same elements of the prophecy. Um, oh, we have to go back to that in a second, actually. Have the same elements of the prophecy. You have four great kingdoms. And so I think it's, it's very safe to see these as the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire, again, uh, being portrayed. Now, there's some slight differences between them, though, in that, well, not necessarily a difference, just different ways of showing the same reality. The statue, they're all kind of topped up on top of each other. And again, it's not like there's a one-to-one -one correlation with history because it's not like these empires rule around at the same time and it's topped up on top of each other. It's part of the symbolism. And in the same way, these four beasts... They aren't, but they're all around at the same time. But these four empires were never around at the same time. One followed the other. So it's not that, it's, that the prophecy or the symbolism is just kind of like a direct, you can just transpose it onto history. Rather, the prophecy says there are four great kingdoms, and there's going to be a kingdom that God sets up, which is going to uh, defeat them. I, I was going to show this earlier. I, I hope this isn't too much of a rewind, but if we just go back, I was going to show it when we are looking at the Daniel 2 thing. Um, but... Just, this is just to show that the, the, the view of seeing these four elements in both of these prophecies as these kingdoms is by no means a modern thing. This is something that the Jews at the time of Jesus, at the time before Jesus, were all very much doing. And I have this, I, th I think, very funny uh, example of this. Where So Josephus, you might have heard me talk about Josephus before. He was a Jewish historian who fought against the Romans. And during one particular siege where he was the captain, uh, he, he and his men were overwhelmed and the Romans came, and he surrendered his life to the Romans, and he joined the Roman side. And from that point on, he was allowed to live supported by a Roman family. And so he wrote a book called The Antiquities of the Jews, which is basically uh, a book demonstrating why the Jewish people are a good, noble people to have around. And there's one bit in, in book 10 of The Antiquities of the Jews where he tells the story of Daniel. Now, bear in mind, they, he believes... And the Jews around at the time all believe that the fourth kingdom, that the, the legs of iron, uh, is the Roman Empire. I mean, this is just brilliant when he says, read this what he says. Daniel did also clear the, the meaning of the stone to the king, right? So the stone is the one that comes and crushes the fourth kingdom. But I do not think it proper to relate it, since I have only undertaken to describe things past, present, uh, things past or things present, but not things that are future. Yet if anyone uh, it wants to be so desirous of knowing truth as to not waive such points of curiosity and cannot curb his inclination for understanding the uncertainties of futurity, and whether they will happen or not, let him be diligent in reading the book of Daniel, which he will found among the sacred writings. In other words, and then something happens to the fourth kingdom with the stone, but we don't need to go into that. You can go read that for yourself. I just think it's, it's really telling, because Josephus clearly thinks that this is going to happen. He knows that this kingdom that he's currently being supported by is going to be defeated, but... It's in his best interest not to tell his patrons, hey, by the way, God's going to destroy you guys. But it's just to say that this is, this is how these prophecies were read and understood. So they were very much expecting the kingdom of God to come during uh, the Roman period. So we've looked at the, the second prophecy now. Um, now, I think that this, obviously we talked about this a, a bit on Sunday in Odium, and I will talk about this in two weeks at Church Crookham. But it's really important. I mean, that whole son of man imagery so important because what you have there essentially is these beasts who are gathering around, who look very ominous and very threatening, but then the hope is, hey, look, God's kingdom is going to come, 
and that Son of Man, those saints of the Most High, are going to be vindicated against all those onlookers, all those who um, speak ill of God's people or don't, don't trust in the coming kingdom, so on and so forth. So, any questions at this point so far? No? Okay. So, I think we can summarize a few things about what we can learn from about the kingdom of God just from these two prophecies in Daniel. The first thing is that the kingdom arrives during the fourth kingdom's reign. This is found in both prophecies. Uh, Daniel 2 is even more explicit. During the, reigns of, during the reign of this kingdom, God will set up a kingdom. So the kingdom is going to come during the fourth kingdom's reign. This is the only kingdom that's power will never be taken away. This is a kingdom for all nations, all peoples, and all languages. That's repeated in both as well. And the kingdom, we see again, it's, well, we see that it starts small in Daniel 7. We see that it starts small and then grows in Daniel chapter 2. Okay, so this is important because the expectation, therefore, isn't that the kingdom is all going to come on the scene at once, at least not from Daniel's prophecy. The starting small is part of the design. It's not a, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Starts small like a stone, grows into a rock, um, and then eventually becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. I'm not sneaking anything in, am I? That, that all seems to follow from what we've read? Yeah? Okay. The, the only reason I'm double-checking that is because these are passages where you can get some of the most... Uh, what's a polite way of saying it? Ludicrous. Ludicrous interpretations. Uh, the whole thing about the little horn, for instance. I, I love the way it says it in Daniel chapter 7. Whilst I was thinking about the horns... It's like that classic activity we all find ourselves doing, Daniel. Oh, yeah, when I was thinking about the horns, I saw a little one. And there's so much literature written um, for people trying to kind of hype up excitement about what, who this little horn could be. You know, is it going to be the coming Islamic empire? Is it going to be the restored Roman empire? There's kind of all these conspiracy theories that just come from the fact that they're not reading Daniel in his context. He's talking about kingdoms that are going to arise in, their, in, you know, in his own time. Um, Mm, no, we won't, no, we won't. We could jump into Daniel 9, but I don't think we will. I think we'll, we'll stick here for, stick with these two for now. So this is what, the first time we see God's kingdom as a concept prophesied, this is what we see. Okay. Let's look at Jesus and the kingdom. Now, this is where I think it's really going to come home what I said, that I'm not going to be able to scratch every itch. So if there is something you want to talk about, and you just put your hand up. If we're going to talk about later, I'll say we'll talk about later, okay? So Jesus in the kingdom. Let's do a group exercise. Maybe talk in your groups. What is the... Th oh, yeah, sorry, Greg. Can you say that this is the first mention of Yeah. Okay, yeah, so this is really good. So this is obviously one of the things we talked about a few months ago was the concept of this coming king. And it says in the Abrahamic covenant that from you kings will come. And, and I mean, when you see David's kingdom established in 2 Samuel 7, for instance, you could say that this is the moment where God's kingdom has arrived. But the, the, the difference is that in Daniel, God's kingdom is being set up, if you like, as like a meta-kingdom over all the kingdoms. Uh, so, so in 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 the with David, for instance, in David's kingdom, you have Israel and you have Babylon over here, and you have Tyre and you have you know so on and so forth, all these kingdoms. But God's kingdom, the thing that distinguishes it in all these others, is that it is the kingdom that all nations and all peoples and all dominion is subject to, and it's it's like a kingdom over kingdoms. So there is, I think that there is a definitely a progression. I like the, I like to use the phrase an organic progression, right? So a tree starts off as a little shrub and then grows up to be a whole tree. There is definitely a, a connection between the promise of the king and the kingdom of Israel, uh, and then this kingdom prophesied in Daniel, but I think that Daniel is taking us somewhere distinctly new. Does that make sense? Or am I just complicating it further? Well, the, 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 the language of a kingdom is never used. It's prophesied that there will be a king. And the assumption is that he's just going to be like a king for Israel. 
right? So that the, when the other prophecies start to come in about the king who all nations are going to be subject to, it's kind of like a jigsaw piece that you don't quite know where to put it. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, and, and it specifically says in Genesis 15 that through Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed. Right, but the point I'm making is that any, any language of a kingdom is very subtle and implicit in the Abrahamic covenant. So the only thing, there's just a passing comment, and from you kings will come. Right, but then that theology starts to be developed, and when we get to Daniel, there's something clearly distinguishable from what's gone before. There's not been any other prophecy that's going to say, hey guys, all these other kingdoms of the earth which are not living up to God's standards, they are going to be subject to this one kingdom that God is going to set up, right? So there are inclinations to that, but there's nothing, there's nothing as clear as what we find in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, so on and so forth. Does that, does that satisfy? Yeah. Okay, so I th- okay, so I think I see okay, so I think what you're getting at is was this God's plan at that point, you know, has God made a distinguished like a, a change in the plan, is that what you're saying? I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying if you were to speak to an Israelite in the six hundreds and say, Hey, do you know about God's kingdom? they might say, uh, what you mean? David's one that split off and has now kind of been a bit destroyed. But if you talk to a Jew after the book of Daniel's been written, yeah, absolutely, we know about God's kingdom. It's going to be coming during the reign of the Fourth Empire. So we're looking at this, bear in mind, we're doing this, a progression of the history of special revelation, if you like, God's people as they come to know God's promises. So in God's mind, Jesus is going to be born from the Virgin Mary during the reign of the Roman Empire since Genesis 1, right? But if you, if you said to an Israelite, during the realm of the during the um, time of the twelve patriarchs, hey, when's Jesus going to be born? They'll have no idea what you're talking about. So I'm doing it from this is kind of from a human perspective, right? Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So again, I think this is one of those areas where it's. What is the prophecy saying? What is the prophecy not saying? So if we're reading it as all these kingdoms were defeated by God, I don't think that that's necessarily what the prophecy is saying because it's because, I mean, by the time you get to the Medo-Persian Empire, for instance, the Babylonian Empire is already non-existent. By the time you get to the Roman Empire, all those other three empires are non-existent. I think it's more the point that, I mean, in Daniel 7, for instance, when you've got the, the four beasts there, it's really interesting that it says... Uh, they were stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. So, again, I don't know how much you can draw into this. I think it's making the point that they continue, but their kind of underlying power is, is taken away. Now, again, you have four beasts all there at the same time doing their mashing and chomping and so on and so forth. There was never a point of history when you had all four of these empires at the same time. So I think it's what we can say the prophecy is saying is that God is intervening in the affairs of man's kingdom, if you like. I don't think, as I say, I don't think there's a one-to-one correlation of just like, okay, well, there has to be, well, this can't have been fulfilled yet because there hasn't been a period of time where there's these four empires all at the same time that God's going to kind of step in and, does that that make sense? I I do think what we'll see as we go through is, um, because you could say, well, Jesus died and rose from the dead and the Roman Empire carried on as normal. I'm definitely jumping ahead at this point, but I think something significant happens in the power structures of the Roman Empire. I mean, the Roman Empire nearly falls apart in 69 AD. It's never the same after that, and within 150 years, it's a Christian empire. I think something that's like the stone has become slightly bigger, and by the time you get to 300 AD, it's now a very large rock, and it's starting to look like a mountain, and it starts to grow and so forth. So I think that, yeah. 
I've said I think a lot, which isn't very good when you're doing biblical interpretation, but um, does that make sense? Yeah, it, the statue topples, the, the kingdoms, well, we're going to look at this when we get a bit further, but you can just say that the kingdoms, God is the one who ends up with the power, is basically the, the gist of it. Well, we'll talk about that. Cool. Do put your hand up again if you don't feel like I answered the question fully enough by the time we get to the end. Jesus and the kingdom. Oh, no, yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go into groups for five minutes and... Um, I just want you to come up with a, like a sentence. You don't have to talk in depth about it, but what do you feel like sums up Jesus' message? Yeah, it's great. Maybe one more. Yeah, yeah. I th- and I think a lot of those things really kind of help to show that, because, I mean, Jesus' ministry is a bit like a diamond, isn't it? I think the main shine is the kingdom, but all the other sides of it are all so like you know like as you say Anita there's like the ethics of the kingdom there's the, the there's the death and resurrection of Jesus that's that's a huge part of it you know bringing the kingdom and so it's kind of it's all wrapped around this whole thing which is why it's probably not surprising that the very first thing Jesus says in his public ministry is the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe uh, in the gospel so I mean he comes onto the scene and starts announcing this what would the average Jew in uh, Palestine think at the time? We're in the reign of the fourth kingdom. There's this guy out in the wilderness who's baptizing people, who's doing all that stuff, and now there's this guy who's come around, we don't know who he is, and he's shouting that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, it's important to say that the Greek word that's used there in Giza, in English, at hand, could kind of mean like, oh, it's near, but it's not here yet. It, it's we could basically just gloss that in English as the kingdom of God is here. Uh, some people have used that to kind of say, oh, yeah, well, it came near with Jesus, but then it kind of went off again. Uh, and, then, you know, it's going to come back again any day now. That's, that's, that's kind of a way that it's been read before. I just don't think that's, that's, that's definitely a, a labored reading. Um, but the kingdom of God's a really big deal for Jesus. I, I also wonder if we could just do a brief excursus, because in, in the Gospel of Matthew, we keep reading about the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And again, there's been some confusion about this. So, for instance, when Jesus says, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, this is often used to say, uh, for getting into heaven when they die. Because we all know the language of going to heaven. This is decisively not what Jesus is talking about. Matthew is the most Jewish of the four Gospels, and even today, Jews are very slow to use the word God or Yahweh or Elohim or any of those kind of things, and so they tend to just either replace God's name with heaven or with the name. So this is, this is a very common thing. So Matthew is just taking where Jesus says kingdom of God and has changed it to kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about the place that you go to when you die. He's talking about the same thing as all the other times he talks about the kingdom of God, the rule and reign that God is bringing to earth. You know, it's about answering that question. What would this situation look like if God was in charge? That's what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God. So when Jesus talks about a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about being justified by faith before he dies. He's talking about to enter into those ethics, the standard that God calls us to when we say that we are citizens of his kingdom. But that's just a brief excursus just to kind of clear that up. So I think... I've got three places that we're going to go to to kind of look at the kingdom and how they relate to Jesus' message and ministry. Um, so on your handout, you've got a box basically for each. So uh, what I think we should do is, if in our groups, we just, I mean, these aren't long passages at all. One verse for the Lord's Prayer, three verses for those parables, and uh, four verses in, in John there. If we just kind of read them and what does this verse or these verses tell us about the nature of the kingdom? And if there are other verses as well which you would like to include, then please do add them too. But um, yeah, let's just spend a bit of time actually looking at how the kingdom relates to Jesus' ministry. Okay, let's, let's start at the bottom and work up. What, what does Pilate's conversation with Jesus in John 18 have to tell us about the kingdom of God? Yes. And what does Jesus, what is the, okay, so this is a really important thing to understand. What for Jesus in this passage distinguishes it 
from the kingdoms of this world. In, in this passage, Yes, yes. If it were, Jesus says, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest, but my kingdom is from another place. So that's a really key thing because so often this passage is used to say something to the effect of, well, the kingdom of God doesn't change anything down here. It's, you know, it's just a, it's, it's in the higher sphere, it's in the spiritual domain. And they go to this passage, but the, the, the point that Jesus makes is, if its origin were here, then I'd have to defend it from here. I'd need to get my soldiers because you know, it's dependent on human might. If it's coming from heaven, he doesn't need the military might. So it's, it's a really important distinction that Jesus makes. The kingdom is not of this world. It's not from this world. It doesn't mean it doesn't interact with this world. Okay. I like, I like that, um, that Pilate then says, so you are a king then. <laughs> You know, it's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. That's very good, actually. That's very helpful. Thanks, John. I, I, I was uh, going to move on without making the point, so I'm glad you did. That's really good. And, and especially, bear in mind that the phrase that's used in Daniel, there was a small stone cut by no human hand. In other words, the passage there is, this isn't done by someone else. This isn't done in might. This is done by God. Um, so, that, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, thanks. Okay, uh, let's jump up again. The parables of the kingdom. What do these have to tell us? And... I should have included this on the handout, but feel free to jump. Obviously, there's loads of parables in this just chapter, in this Matthew 13, this chapter alone. There's loads. But what kind of things can we learn about the kingdom from these parables? Yes. Yeah. It's funny because you don't think that a, a mustard tree and a loaf of bread have much in common, do you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, same same with the seed, really, isn't it? You don't, you don't see the seed anymore. It's covered. It just looks like it's dead. But under the ground, it's doing all this, as you say. And, and I have to say, as someone who makes bread, I am constantly fascinated by yeast. Because, I mean, the amount of times I've uh, left a loaf and I thought, I don't know if that's going to rise or not. And then I've come back later and it's, you know, like this. And the interesting thing is, if you're, if you're making bread, you do everything in percentages based off the, the flour weight. So if I'm using kind of 500 grams of flour, I'm going to use about 300 grams of water, I will use about 6 grams of yeast. Maybe sometimes 4. So the, this is a tiny percent of what's going into this, and yet if you don't have this crucial ingredient, nothing will happen. It, it's the crucial thing, and it makes all the... As you say, it's like magic when you come back and say, oh my goodness, it's three times as big. Uh, and so I think it's really interesting because, again, it starts off small. The stone is tiny. Then it comes a big rock. Then it becomes a mountain. And then it starts to grow and fill the whole world. So, yeah, that's yeah, magic yeast. It's amazing stuff. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about God's kingdom as well, I mean, you think that this is what he established with... So, okay, so... Four, five, six, seven, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Okay, so from this point on, we have the original members of the kingdom of heaven. Twelve blokes in the Middle East. This is a fraction of the size of our church which is a fraction of the size of the churches in Hart District, which are a fraction, of, I mean, in the UK, and then you go out more and more and more and more, and you think, this is a movement that started in the Middle East with 12 frightened men 
Look at where we are now. Is this not yeast that went into dough that we couldn't see anymore? Is this not a seed that went into the ground not to be seen? And now, was it 2.8 billion people across the world called Jesus Lord? So again, to go back to the history of it, like, whoa, if we can see what, we can see what Jesus was talking about. Anyway, I'm definitely getting ahead of myself. Mm. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that these parables tell us quite a lot, really. They, they tell us it's going to grow, but also, I mean, the other parables, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again so that in his joy he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Like, you find something special when you find the kingdom of God. Jesus tells the parable of the weeds that that someone has sown a field full of crops and they've, they've all started to grow and there's weeds growing amongst them. And, but the point that Jesus makes is, yeah, there are weeds growing among, uh, amongst them, but the wheat is growing. And he says that you know, the, the field is the world. So it, it's a sense like we should not be surprised when there are things going wrong, but the reality is the wheat is still growing. That's still the kingdom doing its work. Um, yeah. Anything else on this, these passages, these parables? Okay. The Lord's Prayer. What does the Lord's Prayer tell us about the kingdom? Yeah, and that, that's huge. Again, this comes back to that John 18 thing. Why can Jesus, why can we know decisively that Jesus is not saying that this kingdom has nothing to do with earth? Because he's taught us to pray a prayer that says, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, so the kind of paradigmatic prayer that he wants all of our prayers to be based off as disciples begin with a, an ask of God that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on the earth as it is in the heavens. And this is a, a, what's called a, 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 twin, a twinlet phrase. So on earth as it is in heaven. If you look in your Bible, you might have little indents. Do you have indents in the, in the Lord's Prayer? Bits where it kind of goes like this and then like that. It, it should have it so that your kingdom come, you will be done. These are the same line. And then on earth as it is in heaven is slightly indented. It's to, it's to sim, well not symbolize, it's to make clearer what's going on poetically there that on earth as it is in heaven is a phrase that relates to both of those clauses it's like if i if i said to evangeline um grab your bag and get in the car uh, grab your bag and get yourself in the car i wouldn't be saying pick up your bag put it down again then come get in the car it's you and the bag are both included in that latter thing to get in the car does that make sense okay so, yeah, Jesus is telling us to pray that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, Jesus is, is trying to tell us something about how the kingdom's going to come. It starts small. It comes from God, not from human activity. Uh, that it's going to grow and that the kingdom is marked by God's will. Now, if we know the moral qualities of God, we know he's a God who loves justice, he's a God who loves peace, He's a God who loves righteousness, so on and so forth. If that's what God's will looks like, then it tells us about what it looks like when the kingdom comes. Again, it's that question of what would it look like if God were in charge here? So the, the kingdom as a concept in that sense can come in every area of your life. You can start to apply kingdom principles to who you are as uh, a wife or a father or an uh, employee or a boss or uh, someone who lives in your town or a citizen of this nation, whatever you are going to do, whatever uh, calling or office or role or whatever you have, you ask the question, what does it look like for me to do this as a kingdom person, as someone who wants to bring God's will into what I'm doing here? And I don't think that's necessarily an easy thing to do. And I'm also just realizing I'm jumping ahead of what we're going to say in a minute. Um, yeah. Any, any comments to make off the back of this? Okay, cool. 
Okay, let's just lastly, uh, I, I, I didn't really know what to call this section, I, so I've kind of gone kingdom now to kind of be like, okay, what does this look like? Because if Jesus says that the kingdom is at hand, it, you know, it came in the first century, but there's still more to come because clearly God's will isn't being done on earth as it is in heaven right now. Clearly the stone hasn't become the mountain that's filled the whole world just yet. So there is clearly a lot of enemies that need to be defeated. Oh, I, I forgot to say this earlier, but Luke 17, this is a passage that Andy preached on a few weeks ago, the parable of the Minas, where Jesus tells a, a parable about how you are entrusted with some treasure, and so you have to do with it what you can before the master returns. If you look at why Luke says Jesus tells this parable, he says, Jesus told them a parable because they thought that the kingdom would all come at once. So there they are thinking that the mountain's just going to arrive. So to, to stop that, Jesus says, if you were lent some money and told to invest it, what would that look like? You know, this is what a faithful person would do. This is what an unfaithful person would do. So the whole reason why Jesus tells us to be faithful and do those things is because the kingdom is a growing reality that it isn't going to all come at once. But we want to be witnesses to see it coming in our own you know, lives and families and streets and neighborhoods and so on and so forth. Does that, does that make sense? Cool. Um, okay, so kingdom now. What does it look like to actually uh, do this? Okay, um, I've put this little picture there. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And the reason I've put this there, hopefully by the end it will all make sense, is because this is definitely not the attitude that we should be having. This is a very common, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very common kind of thing that gets said, and it actually should be the other way around. Heaven is not my home. I'll just be passing through. But let's uh, talk about that more in a minute. So, Citizenship. Where is our citizenship? According to Philippians 3, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. What does that mean? If in the modern context, if I was living in, say, uh, Germany, and I told someone, I don't have German citizenship, I have British citizenship. What would that mean about my staying in Germany? I'm not going to be here long. I have to go back to Britain. That's where my citizenship is. If we read that into what Paul says in Philippians 3, we're actually reversing how citizenship is understood in the ancient world. So let me tell you a story. Um, in the uh, second century, Rome, the city, was getting very overcrowded. And so what the Roman Empire decided to do is send a bunch of people who lived in the city but didn't have citizenship over to Ephesus, and they were told, we'll give you Roman citizenship if you go and form a colony in Ephesus. And so they went, and they were now Roman citizens, and their job was to bring Rome to Ephesus. Most citizens of Rome did not live in Rome. Citizenship said where you were backed by, not where you're going. So Paul is a Roman citizen. He, he grew up in Tarsus, in Tarsus. So, so um, in, in, the, in Acts, for instance, when he's being flogged, he says, don't you know I'm a Roman citizen? And they say, no, we jolly well didn't. We're, we're going to stop flogging you now. And the point was, he had certain privileges and protections because he belongs to Rome. It does not mean, don't you know that I'm going back to Rome because that's where I'm from. He'd never been to Rome before. So when Paul says, your citizenship is in heaven, that does not mean that's where you're going back. What it means is that is the source of your privileges and authorities, and you, like those people in Ephesus, have a responsibility to bring heaven to wherever you are. And the reason I'm saying this now rather than next time when we talk about the new creation is because I think this is so key to understanding our role as, as ambassadors of the kingdom. The kingdom is not something that we're longing to go to. It's something that we are entrusted to act out in the present now because we are citizens of heaven. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, what about the other kingdoms? Daniel 7, D Daniel 2 tells us that during the time of the, fifth, the fourth kingdom, God is going to set up a kingdom and all other kingdoms are going to be subject to it. And I kind of alluded to this earlier, um, but in, so in Revelation 11, there's a curious little phrase where it says the time for rejoicing has come for the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and his Christ who will reign forever amen and the point there is not that the kingdom of God cancels out other kingdoms 
but rather that they are, if, if you like, um, RMP is it, well, this isn't a very good analogy because we're a democracy, but I'll go with it anyway. Uh, Ranul Jayawardena is, if you like, the ruler of this area, but he is subject to a greater ruler. Right? Uh, even with the United Kingdom, for instance, we have different parliaments in, in Scotland and Ireland and Wales and the UK, and yet they're all subject to one power. And I think the same thing's going on here, and I think we see this in Daniel 7 as well. The beasts aren't defeated, but their authority is stripped away. So there's something there about God's kingdom is like a kingdom that sits on all the other kingdoms. And so now, like in Psalm 2, for instance, it says all the kings of the earth are subject to the Lord's Messiah. So we can still very much be uh, British citizens subject to uh, this nation, subject to this kingdom, but be subject in a greater level to the kingdom of God. And I, the reason I've included this is because I think this is a really important and practical consideration because in the history of the church, there's been some Christians who have wanted to take this so seriously and radically that what they think that means is they have to leave all of society that's currently established and be God's kingdom somewhere else. So if you think about the Amish movement or the Mennonite movement, for instance, these were people who said, no, 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 we can't be subject to any other kingdom. We're part of God's kingdom. And I don't think that's what God's kingdom calls us to do at all. I don't think that's found anywhere in what Jesus has to say. It does say that um, whoever is in charge is themselves subject to someone else who is in charge. Right, so um, Rishi Sunak will be judged on his capacity as leader. Does that make sense? So if, so if I put it another way, like, so um, James 3 says, not many of you should desire to be teachers, for we know that teachers will be judged more harshly. So I will be judged as Joshua, but I will also be judged in my capacity as a teacher of the gospel. And that will be a harsher judgment. And uh, King Charles III will be judged as Charles, but he will also be judged as how was your conduct as king? Did you reign in righteousness? Did you bring justice and, and peace and so on and so forth? And the, so the kingdom of God is, as I say, like a kingdom that sits on other kingdoms. We, are, we can be good, faithful citizens of wherever we are found, but we are subject ultimately to God's kingdom. Which I think brings to that last point of uh, kingdom vocation. We are all called to be kingdom bearers wherever we are. That is our primary vocation. So Henny, your job is not principally to teach people how Genesis software works. That's your secondary job. Your primary vocation is to be an ambassador and bringer of the kingdom. I just picked on Henny because I saw him first. I'm not going to go around and say it to everyone, but it, it applies to everyone. Just imagine I was spoken to you all individually. You, you, we all have a vocation, and so there's lots of different ways of looking at that vocation. Evangelism is a huge one. I mean, part of being an ambassador is being a herald. To herald the kingdom is, is something that we're called to do. But to act out the kingdom, you know, think about Jesus' um, curse on the Pharisees. You care about the, the, the minor matters of the law, but you neglect the greater matters of justice. So if we do believe in a God who is so committed to justice that he wouldn't just kind of forgive sins willy-nilly, but had his own son die on the cross so that he could be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, if God cares that much about these things, so should we. We should care about seeing the needy cared for, the, you know, the, the one who has no voice being spoken for, the oppressed being set free, and so on and so forth. And that's not supposed to sound like a kind of a liberal social justice woke thing. This is a, this is a biblical thing that Jesus calls us to do, uh, to see societies transformed uh, in the name of Jesus. So we've all, we've all got a vocation. And then the last thing, just to top it off, you know, why do I say the world is not my, why do I say heaven is not my home? I'll just be passing through. Because if everything that we've looked at is true, that Jesus says that the kingdom is going to come here, if, if the kingdom is going to bring all nations and peoples and languages and so on and so forth together, if God is going to bring his justice here, then this is where we want to see God act. And heaven is where we go while we await the day where we rise, rise from the dead to, to see the fully realized kingdom that God has brought, the full mountain. We'll, we'll go to heaven, yeah, great, but we're not, we're not going to be staying there. We're going to be coming back to the fully realized, fully established kingdom that God has been working at for the last 2,000 years and still has a lot more to do. So, um, yeah, I think that's everything I wanted to say. Any questions? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, okay. Do I do the simple answer or do we do a whole other deep dive into Isaiah 46? Okay, so uh, in the prophecy you have, uh, there's kind of the two halves. There's a half where you have the four beasts and the son of man and then there's a bit where the angel explains it. And I think there's a very, there's a point of, uh, so that the, the, the son of man represents the saints of the most high. So it's representation. I think this is exactly what we have in the person of Jesus. So why does Jesus spend 40 days being tempted by the devil and every time answering from Deuteronomy in the period where Israel were tempted in the wilderness? It, it corresponds to the 40 years where the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, being tempted and giving in, whereas Jesus is faithful in that. And the point there is that Jesus, as one man, represents all the people of God, which is why Paul constantly talks about us being in Christ. I'm not righteous because I'm a righteous person. I'm righteous because I'm in Christ and he is righteous. So the point there is that Jesus represents all his people. So you could say we corporately are the son of man, but because insofar as we are in the son of man, which is Jesus. So Jesus... Okay, so... Oh, I see. Well, I mean... In Second Temple Judaism, it was read in, in this very kind of similar way, that the, even though the Son of Man is the saints of the Most High, there is also this singular figure which somehow represents all the people. So in Isaiah 53, for instance, the suffering servant who suffers for Israel has been identified as Israel. This is my servant Israel through whom I will regather Israel. So the Jews understood this kind of tension between this one person who, who's coming who represents all of the people and yet that there is all the people as well. Does that make sense? It's, as I say, I don't know if I'm overcomplicating this. No. No. The Son of Man in, in Daniel 7 is, is not a divine title. So, well, okay, so <laughs> it might be. So, okay, so we have two versions of uh, the book of Daniel in Greek that were both being read at the time of Jesus, what we call the Septuagint, what we call the Theodosian version. In the Septuagint version, where it says, there came one like a son of man to the, to the ancient of days, in the Septuagint version it says, there came one like the son of man who was the ancient of days. Whereas in the Theodosian version, it says there came one like a son of man who came to the Ancient of Days, which is a better reflection of the Aramaic. So there were some Jews. So the book of um, Enoch, for instance, very much reads the son of man as being a singular figure who is divine. So some people were reading it in that way. But I, I, I don't think that when Jesus says that he's the son of man in his trial scene and says, and you'll see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, he's not making a divine claim about himself. Their, their charge of blasphemy comes from the fact that he is calling himself Israel's Messiah and therefore, you know, you have to serve me because that's what Daniel 7 says, all, all peoples, nations, languages will all serve him, so on and so forth. And so they hand him over to Rome as a political usurper. So, I mean, blasphemy is much wider than just he's claiming to be God. Um, but I think the key point, the reason why they say blasphemer is because when they say, are you the Messiah? And he says, I am, which is the divine title. So, Yes, I, I feel like we've just kind of done a bit of roundabout. But have I have I landed in a helpful place, or is there more to? There was a book published about 12 years ago by a scholar who basically thinks that every Jew in the Second Temple period expected the Messiah to be a divine figure. That's not been particularly well accepted, but there is enough there that some people have thought that this was the general opinion. I, I'm personally not persuaded by that, so um, don't know how helpful that is, but uh, yes, potentially. Okay. Uh, anything else? If 
you're, if you're put off by how long it takes me to give a simple answer, then I, uh, <laughs> fair enough. Okay, well, should we do a quick recap and then finish then? And if you do have a question, you can always ask me anyway. So our recap, uh, we looked at Daniel's visions, which showed four successive empires that arrived, the, arise, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman, and prophesized that God's kingdom will arise during the fourth kingdom, which indeed is what happened. Uh, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God is a present and coming reality. Present yet coming is building its way up. And we have a calling in the present as members of God's kingdom. I think that's a fair enough summary of everything we've talked about tonight. Okay. I hope that's not been too much of a, of a brain melter. But um, we good? Greg, you look like you have a question brewing. Okay. Fair enough. Well, let me, let me close in prayer. God, thank you that you are in.